Excellent. Uh, thank all of you for joining the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are moving into Chapter 4, the introduction to schizoanalysis. Uh, the rest of this book is going to be us going over... There are so many, as I was just sort of musing, there are so many little things that are in every single one of these sections that are uh, little rabbit holes that we can go down, and we will be trying to go down as many as we can uh, through the reading and also in our review session. So please join us. Join us live every Monday, noon, Los Angeles time. We're not switching back to 10 a.m. Uh, I don't feel like doing that, and I think, uh, as Lou was saying, we need to keep this pretty standard. So it's going to be noon every Monday, uh, noon every Tuesday for our reviews. Please join us. Uh, I think uh, I will try to do our best to say that the rest of the server, uh, we have uh, a lot of readings coming up. We've started our new one on Baudrillard. Uh, we have our Bergson readings coming up. We have our ongoing Heidegger and Zizek readings. Uh, I don't know, is anything going currently with Simondon, uh, Jack? I think Simondon still meets. It's still Saturdays, right? Or is that Sundays? I think it's Sundays. Saturdays. Saturdays? Jeez. No, no, no. Sundays. Sundays Sunday. is right. Saturdays is literature. Saturdays is the lit group, which is uh, Jack, who's here. Jack, what are you guys reading this week? Anything new? Yes, we actually had a little bit of a scheduling problem this past week. And so this Saturday at noon PDT will be our reading of Crap's Last Tape by uh, Beckett and the uh, Simondon group. I think they're still reading Technical Objects. We'll be meeting Sunday at 11 a.m. PDT. Excellent. And I think uh, if I can, uh, if I head back to our uh, calendar and our setup, I believe our uh, ongoing Zizek group uh, is uh, meets on Wednesdays uh, at, uh, I want to say noon. Uh, ish, and then uh, yeah, I believe it's it's noon uh, Wednesdays, and then Heidegger is uh, Fridays, I believe, at 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. Uh, so we have a lot of stuff going, uh, and we have a lot of people who are going to be joining this reading and all of those. So please uh, grab one and head on into it. Uh, the goal from here on out, uh, please do keep your eyes on the follow-up questions here. And if you're listening to this after the fact, please join our Discord server. Links are pretty much all over the place wherever you found us. Uh, our follow-up questions each week is going to uh, list out the paragraphs from the next chapter we're reading. And I'm going to ask people to please let me know which one you would like to speak of and which one you want to dive into. Uh, it'll help me host this a little bit better, help me know that I don't have to spend uh, a few hours the night before Googling random shit that may not even be relevant and then making an ass of myself on the recording. So feel free to completely uh, uh, dive in and say which one of these paragraphs you'd like to jump in. This first uh, section, however, of this chapter is called The Social Field, and I'm excited to dive into it. So without further ado, uh, we will begin by asking that eternal question. Which comes first? the chicken or the egg, but also the father and the mother or the child. Psychoanalysis acts as if it were the child. The father is sick only from his own childhood, but at the same time is forced to postulate a parental pre-existence. The child is sick only in relation to a father and mother. This is clearly evident in the primal position of the father of the horde. Oedipus itself would be nothing without the identifications of the parents with the children, and the fact 
cannot be hidden that everything begins in the mind of the father. Isn't that you want to kill me? Is, isn't that what you want, to kill me, to sleep with your mother? It is first of all a father's idea, thus Laius. It is the father who raises hell and who brandishes the law. The mother tends to be obliging. We mustn't make this into a scene. It's only a dream, a territoriality. Levi Strauss puts it very well. The initial theme of the key myth is the incest committed by the hero with the mother. Yet the idea that he is guilty seems to exist mainly in the mind of the father, who desires his son's death and schemes to bring it about. In the long run, it is the father who appears guilty, though having tried to avenge himself, and it is he who is killed. This curious indifference towards incest appears in other myths. Oedipus is the first, is first, the idea of an adult paranoiac before it is the childhood feeling of an erotic. So it is that psychoanalysis has been difficult. So it is that psychoanalysis has much difficulty extracting itself from an infinite regression. The father must have been a child, but was able to be a child only in relation to a father who was himself a child in relation to another father. So, uh, hell of a way to open up. Uh, uh, I'll open anyone have any quick thoughts on this before I dive in and I start asking questions because we have to the, the thing we have to discuss here is that they are specifically saying that it is the father's paranoiac that causes the child's neuroses that's how I mean, it's simple I mean in terms if we actually go back to the Oedipus myth that's fairly straightforward right we have Laios the father who's who gets this prophecy before Oedipus, the son, is actually born, and based on which he banishes, uh, like, the prophecy is that his son will uh, kill him and marry his wife. And based on this prophecy, he banishes his firstborn when uh, that one is actually born. The prophecy is, again, before the son is actually born. So... Um, it all starts with this prophecy, which is completely disconnected from the actual existing sun. Yeah, I, I, I I'm uh, also reminded. It's basically the father uh, in the story, as I've always read it. Uh, his his paranoiac, his crazy intentions is ultimately what causes this prophecy to come about. His his act is the first act, that it's not the son, the guilt is not visited upon the son uh, first, that it's through the acts of the father that the, that the son uh, gains uh, down to the activity of incest and the, the killing of the father and all of these things, almost unbeknownst to the child. At least as I read the original myth. Yeah, if, if um, he hadn't been banished and as Jack says um, I think he, uh, the father actually wants to kill the son but the mother smuggles him out um, the son would have known about who his father is and who his mother is and the whole situation that came to pass wouldn't have come to pass because well he would have known who they are <laughs> Yeah, and it and it lays out um, it lays out a story for the child to follow as well, because he hears this the tales of the the son who will return who killed and this why he gouges out his eyes is he ultimately does this thing that uh, he says absolutely it's what I'm doing it's this is who I am I was destined to do this awful awful thing this is my mother and so I must claw my own eyes out. Um, 
it, it, it reminds me a little bit. I'm, I'm rereading Dune for like the 90th time, uh, but it's a lot of that same sort of thing with Madib, actually, where it's very set up to be, uh, here's all of the prophecy that surrounds this thing, and oh, look, we're making it come true kind of mentality for the entire thing. The, the story begets itself, basically. You know, though, um, I do think it's an interesting point they're, they're bringing up here, too, in connection with that. Um, where they point out, like, isn't that what you want to kill me and sleep with your mother, right? Like, it's a, a rhetorical question, uh, one that um, doesn't even reach the audience, yeah? Um, it, it, and it speaks to the paranoia here, right? But it's interesting because, um, just like we're talking about the Oedipal myth, like, at no point is the child ever asked, and it would be just kind of silly to ask a child, this, wouldn't it? But um, I suppose that's the point. Um, it, it would be rather interesting had Laos actually said to Oedipus. So um, I understand that uh, you're interested in killing me and um, uh, marrying my wife. Uh, uh, can we reach some sort of ne negotiation here? Yeah. But it, it's kind of taken for granted, right? It's uh, bestowed. I like the, the thing that it ends on this paragraph where it says, uh, father must have been a child, but was able to be a child only in relation to a father who was himself a child, but only in relation to that father. And it kind of uh, extends on ad infinitum back in time. Yeah, I think this infinite regress comes up later in the section again. And I think actually they, in the second sentence of this section where they reference the primal position of the father of the horde. I think um, the reference here is um, how Freud basically resolves uh, this infinite regression with um, the father of the band of brothers that originally actually did this whole uh, patricide thing. Like, I, I'm, I don't know uh, Totem and Taboo all that well. I haven't read it or anything. So maybe anyone who has done that could comment on this. Well, I think, actually, they, I think they get into it a little bit later um, as well, a lot more clearly. Um, I do want to continue to move forward. Uh, does anyone have anything in response to Lou before I do? I, I haven't read Totem and Taboo, but at least from the standpoint of civilization's discontents. Um, one way to read this, um, this paragraph is, or a different way to read the paragraph is um, with the father as like an institution, right? Or like um, your place in an institution, right? Where it's kind of presupposed that everyone's trying to move up. It's kind of cutthroat, right? Or with the institution itself, right? That is kind of the means of a sustenance of some sort, whereby like, the, the Oedipal relationship would be the killing of that um, that larger figure in, that we call the father and then kind of taking over that domain uh, or in another sense marrying the mother. How does the delirium begin? Perhaps the cinema is able to capture the movement of madness precisely because it is not analytical and regressive, but explores a global field of coexistence. Witness a film by Nicholas Ray. 
supposedly representing the formation of a cortisone delirium. An overworked father, a high school teacher who works overtime for a radio taxi service and is being treated for heart trouble. He begins to rave about the educational system in general, the need to restore pure race, the salvation of the social and moral order. And then he passes to religion, the timeliness of a return to the Bible, Abraham. But what in fact did Abraham do? Well, now he killed or wanted to kill his son. And perhaps God's only error lies in having stayed his hand. But doesn't this man, the film's protagonist, have a son of his own? Hmm. What the film shows so well, to the shame of psychiatrists, is that every delirium is first of all an investment of the field that is social, economic, political, cultural, racial, and racist, pedagogical, and religious. The delirious person applies the delirium to his family and his son that overreaches them on all sides. Uh, it's worth specifically bringing out a Nicholas Ray phenomenal director. Uh, uh, Rebel Without a Cause is the famous one he made. It, but Bigger Than Life is specifically the book, uh, the, the film that he's talking about here. And everything that they say there is, that's basically the plot of the movie. Spoiler alert, I suppose. Um, the father... And it was a thing that was at the time, uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time reading up on this over the last week, but it was really interesting, the response in general of the idea that delirium could be given to someone who was living such a good life inside of suburbia in the 1950s. People were actually kind of upset at this movie for saying that such a thing was possible, which is kind of incredible when we think about where we're at now in understanding of mental health. But uh, Bigger Than Life specifically is about this sort of sick delirium that a father goes through, and he absolutely does sort of subsume everyone around him in this delirium. And so when they say, and this is the part I'm wanting to expand on because the rest of this is just a description of bigger than life. Um, to the sh what this film shows to the shame of psychiatrists is that every delirium is first of all, the investment of a field that is social, economic, blah, 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 blah. The delirious person applies a delirium to his family and his son that overreaches them on all sides. Is this essentially saying that the way that these deliriums, the way that the paranoiac applies his story is that it, uh, it automatically subsumes, absorbs everyone around it and surrounds them with every possible reason that it could have, whether social, economic, political, cultural, racial, or racist, pedagogical, and religious. What does that sentence mean? That's the part I'm having trouble with, is the his son that overreaches them on all sides. That, that overreaching them. So I'm reminded of the section with group fantasy where like, it doesn't make sense to talk about the family as though it exists outside of the economic, social, pedagogical, racial, and all these other um, uh, dimensions. So I, th I think what they're getting at is that... Um, it's not so much I, I think that like one person has like right i don't think it's so much saying that like leas has this, this problem and he takes it into the the people any more than abraham does but um sort of that like there's um what seems to be something of a reflexive relationship where both the group and these different dimensions right um or these different regimes if you prefer um are actively investing in one another such that this kind of, whether you want to call it group fantasy or, or simply um, this kind of cinema, this play, if you like, um, comes to develop through those, those mutual investings. 
also the film very specifically it, his process is actually it's 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 an interesting story by right? he starts taking cortisone forget what the drug is that they just use the word cortisone um but he starts taking it and he begins abusing it he becomes more efficient at work and then suddenly not and instead of realizing that it's that obviously this variable that he's changed of taking cortisone and kind of abusing it that has made him worse at work, he begins blaming everyone around him, society at large, and getting angry about the way that it goes, uh, the way society's functioning, the way you know the blacks are, and then the, the whites aren't in power anymore, and then this and that, and he just spends all of his time kind of losing his shit over time and specifically the order kind of they put it out where it starts social, then economic, bitching about money, political, the government, cultural, racial and racist, pedagogical and religious. Uh, I think he he condemns Catholics at one point or one of the the Jew. I can't remember. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I watched the film. Um, but he slowly grows until he gets to the point where he decides he has to stab and kill his own son. And so it's this growth through all of these social investments uh the the fields around him that happens slowly until he's able to basically find a way to justify why his son is part of it and how his son is involved in his delirium his wife too actually throughout it as kind of an odd enabler um it's an it's a the dynamic is really interesting it's a worthwhile film worth watching um and a, and a interesting sort of uh anti-film to rebel without a cause because it's a very it's a very different message despite being a critique sort of of the times and everything still it's a different message and different styles of character anyone have any final thoughts before i move into the next paragraph joseph gable presenting a case of paranoiac delirium with a strong political erotic content replete with suggestions for social reform believes it possible to say that such a case is rare and that moreover its origins are not reconstructable Yet it is evident there is never a delirium that does not possess this characteristic to a high degree, and that it is not originally economic, political, and so forth, before being crushed into the psychiatric and psychoanalytic treadmill. Judge Schreber would not deny this, nor his father, who invented the... Uh, I'm going to ask, we've got a German here. Lou, how do you pronounce it? Pangymnostikon. Uh, Thank you. And a general pedagogical system. Everything changes then. The infinite regression forced us to postulate a primacy of the father, but an always relative and hypothetical primacy that carried us to infinity, barring a shift into the position of an absolutely primary father. But it is clear that the viewpoint of regression is the result of abstraction. When we say the father is first in relation to the child, this proposition, devoid of meaning in itself, concretely means the following. The social investments are first in relation to the familial investments, which results solely from the application or the reduction of the social investments. To say that the father is first in relation to the child really amounts to saying that the investment of desire is in the first instance the investment of a social field into which the father and the child are plunged, simultaneously immersed. There's a lot going on here. Um, before we actually, I, I, I do want, uh, Lou, if you have a second to talk through, uh, you found, you dove into Judge Schreiber and his father a little bit. Do you want to talk through that? Because it is really a thing I didn't realize, Judge Schreiber's father, what he had done and what he was part of. Basically, I found this because I actually googled Pangomnasticon. And that's actually 
the title of the second volume of uh, Moritz Schreber's Magnus Opum. Opus. Um, and Moritz Schreber is uh, Paul Daniel, Daniel Paul Schreber's uh, father. And Daniel Paul Schreber is, this, uh, is Judge Schreber. And, um, well, Moritz Schreber is one of the big figures in what is now called poisonous pedagogy. So um, pedagogy that builds heavily on corporeal punishment. And specifically in the case of Schreber, there's also a streak of um, like involvement with uh, Volksgesundheit, um, which is basically the pedagogical branch of eugenics. Um, feeds directly into later Nazi ideology. Um, yeah, and um, basically uh, three out of five of his children were totally fucked <laughs> later in life. <laughs> Turns out. No, it's 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 one of those things. Like um, as I started googling it when you mentioned it, it felt like something that. Uh, I don't know if anyone here was a big fan of The Office, but uh, the sort of one of the running jokes was Dwight Schrute came from a hard German background and had all of these things that were like these hilarious, like insane, over-the-top German tropes. This felt like something straight out of that. The the binding through leather of children's legs together during gymnastics, like really weird shit, as part of Schreiber's father's schooling, like really weird shit. It's super yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah. A base assumption of this whole context of which Schreiber is part of is basically that city life degenerates our children and we need to correct their bodies and form their bodies so they will be a strong Aryan folk. <laughs> like, this goes directly in later yeah, Nazi um, And it's, I think... It fits. It's 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 informative to this paragraph because this this paragraph is again diving into the idea of uh, how the paranoiac versus the neurotic, where where that comes in, how we demand this knowledge, how we understand things, and how the delirium is formed, starting in the social context, and that the child is plunged in with the father as sort of into that. Uh, I would say that the pangymnasticon. I'm not, probably not going to pronounce it right. Uh, it falls into that. It's a very, uh, hey, everything's wrong. Let's abuse the children. <laughs> it's such a fucked up thing. The, the images are pretty extraordinary. It's worth, it's worth Googling. Some of them are just amazing. So to, to go back real quick, um, the, the first part of this paragraph is very much about, uh, again, carrying through the concept of how that delirium functions. Uh, how it plays from the father to the child, uh, and how it starts with the paranoiac delusions of the father being visited upon the child as they plunge in together. And that's how this paragraph ends, and it's an interesting phrasing they use for that that I want to talk about. When we say the father is first in relation to the child, this proposition, devoid of meaning itself, means the following. The social investments are first in relation to familial investments, which result solely from the application of the reduction of social investments. Uh, essentially saying the first instant, uh, 
the investment of desire is in the first instance the investment of social field into which the father and child are plunged simultaneously immersed the father and child dive in together uh and that's i think what they're saying and i mean they're going to be a lot more explicit about it later but again when they talk about the paranoid and then the neurotic uh which is what this sort of starts out with uh the paranoid causing the neurotic in the child the paranoid father feels like they're pointing to one causing the other uh, from on high, just how I'm reading it. Any thoughts on this paragraph before we go on? Uh, yes, just a, um, a brief one. I think this gets at what we were just talking about in the preceding paragraph more um, more pointedly, right? Like, like we were saying, um, getting conscious in this way um, is productive, yeah. And so it really this kind of delirium doesn't seem to me to be so much of like something really personal that you're carrying out into the social field. Although there is of course a personal, um, like context to the, the individual. Yeah. Um, but more so like with social investments, um, with, the, with the investment of desire, right. The, the cathetsis that's happening with the unconscious, um, this production happens, like Brooks was saying, it's, um, and, and to that point too, we find ourselves, I think, if I remember correctly, as father and child, and as a mother in that regard too, as they quote Artaud in chapter one, but really it's a, it's a, it, it's an ongoing submerging for not only like uh, the people in this familial triangle, but um, more directly, it's a social submerging right so it's not even like uh we can't simply reduce it to um to a three-person play i wholly agree and i think a, a big part of what they're doing here is they're sort of taking on the idea and they've made this joke a few times that the idea of oedipus is that it kind of comes fully formed that you have this triangulation and that's how it works one is not necessarily the cause of the other but this exist this is how families are fully formed from birth whatever word you want to put in place of that for the the eminence of creation and i think a lot of what they're saying here is saying no no actually no one is causing the other and here's kind of where it starts it starts with the paranoiac and the dad and and the kid because of his existence inside of this paranoiac delirium becomes neurotic and through his neuroses over time develops into becoming the father and then that just basically restarts every time they have a fucking kid yeah so, we don't quite get the origin do we because it's you know you're again father child you, you end up being both so to speak um and you're constantly kind of becoming the father and child here so you you really don't get the origin as far as i can tell so just to make this explicit in i think I haven't actually read um, the Schreber case by Freud, um, but my understanding is that Freud isn't at all interested in uh, Schreber's actual father. All references that spell this out in psychoanalysis um, that make this, that bring this father um, forth were to Alice Miller, actually, that I found. So um, they come back to this, how psychoanalysis only um, talks about or wants to make the father and the mother to the um, 
to only exist in the fantasy of the child, right? So here we ha here they introduce the 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 actual father, the, who actually um, does things and not just in the imagination of the child. Uh, Kent, uh, you posted about Kurt Lewin. Uh, did you want to? Do you want to bring that up now or after the next paragraph after we get through Gardner? Well, he, uh, the only thing is that, you know, there are social theories out there where they talk about the social field. And so Kurt Lewin is a good example of that. It's a, he's a great example. And the idea of field theory predates, I think, Cardiner, who we're about to discuss. Um, but let, let, me, let me jump into the paragraph because I think it's worth going into after we read through this because it's very much, uh, I think, wrapped together. Uh, let us again consider the example of the Marquesans as analyzed by Cardiner. He distinguishes between an adult elementary anxiety linked to an endemic famine and an infantile elementary anxiety linked to, the to a deficiency of maternal care. Not only is it impossible to derive the first anxiety from the second, but one cannot even consider, as Cardiner does, that the social investment corresponding to the first anxiety comes after the infantile familial investment of the second. For the determination of the social field is already invested in the second type of anxiety, namely the rarity of women that explains how it is that the adults, no less than the children, are wary of them. In brief, what the child invests through the infantile experience, the mother's breast, and the familial structure is already a state of the breaks and flows of the social field in its entirety flows of women and of food, recordings and distributions. Never is the adult an afterward of the child, but in the family, both relate to the determinations of the field in which both the family and they are simultaneously immersed. I like how they say uh, rarity of women and not lack of women. <laughs> well, it's it's a, it's a an interesting thing. So the, the Marquesans and the the... A lot of what Cardiner did and a lot of his time was spent dealing with the neuroses of war. I think that's his primary book that I've been able to find. Um, and uh, one of those things that happens during wartime is, uh, well, I mean, especially, especially, you know, 100, 150 years ago, but women were not on the front lines. And so uh, they were the first uh, runaway, killed, captured, all kinds of terrible shit. And so... Uh, what he found as he went out is that, uh, and he, he said that uh, there's an adult version of famine where you just simply do not have food, uh, which tended to be the case that women were the ones responsible for food in this culture. At the same time, the children didn't have maternal care, which, again, women are very much responsible for maternal care uh, in this society and in ours still. Um, so the idea of uh, having those uh, sort of separated when that that's that's what uh, i think uh they're going after here is that do you want to expand on it a little bit lou anyone yeah i, 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 don't, I don't really know about that case I, I i'm not super familiar with it having just basically googled and read through it just a little bit yeah i mean this looks like it's expanding on that that last sentence of the previous paragraph to say that the father is first in relation to the child really amounts to saying that the investment of desire is in the first instance the investment of the social field into which the father and the child are plunged simultaneously immersed. 
Right. So what we're and this this is obviously taking it uh, further to the mother as well. But it looks to me like what they what they're getting at is like the investments of like the child suckling and the mother um, um, giving milk and and even with the paucity of um, uh, of women in the society, like these are social investments, right? And and in that manner, um, it's not just like the right right like this is still the flows of desire and with it um, the flows of desire breaks, right? So it's it seems to be opening up um, these social investments, these um, uh, these. Uh, hate to say it, these familial investments um, to a larger context in relation to desire, uh, desiring production. Go over one sentence that I have a question about, because I want to try to really understand uh, how, in this sentence, we actually have the child and father simultaneously immersed. In brief, what the child invests through the infantile experience, the mother's breast, and the familial structure is already a state of the breaks and the flows of the social field in its entirety. Flows of women and of food, recordings and distributions. Never is the adult an aftermath of the child, but in the family, both relate to the determinations of the field in which both the family and they are simultaneously immersed. To say another way, I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, because of the, the wartime that the family exists inside of this, this is very specific to wartime for the Marquesians and uh, everything that's happening there. Uh, the things that are happening to the family inside of the social field that's due to famine and all kinds of things, uh, we end up having a place where the father and the child, uh, it's they're both simultaneously plunged into this thing of famine, of of harm, of scarcity, of uh, rarity, of lack, of women, of food, of all of these things, which are essentially the social field. And because it's ultimately acting upon the family as a family unit, both relate to the ter terminations in the field because they're both simultaneously immersed. Yeah, if we're if we're submerged in these social investments and we're actively engaging with them. Um, then the, right, we're, we're connecting and disconnecting. So then I would ask, if it happens simultaneously, and at what point is the father first in relation to the child, if they're simultaneous? Or am I speaking of two different separate things here? I know they're about to explain this in the next paragraph, but I want to have a better understanding before we go into that. So that's I think, why I think the sequence... Uh, I, I think the sequential view is just them spelling out the consequences of um, uh, psychoanalysis. Like, if psychoanalysis is right, this is what happens, and that doesn't make any sense. Like, regardless of whether the child or the father is first, psychoanalysis kind of needs to posit both. Okay. Okay, I, I think I'm starting to grasp that. I, I am going to move to the next paragraph because it does answer some of this. I just wanted to have a better grasp of that before I move on. Anyone have any questions, thoughts, random things for this paragraph before we move on? Hence, we are confronted by three unavoidable conclusions. From the point of view of regression, whose meaning is only hypothetical, it is the father who is first in relation to the child. The paranoiac father oedipalizes the son. 
Guilt is an idea projected by the father before it is an inner feeling experienced by the son. The first error of psychoanalysis is in acting as if things began with the child. This leads psychoanalysis to develop an absurd theory of fantasy, in terms of which the father, the mother, and the real actions and passions must first be understood as fantasies of the child, the Freudian abandonment of the theme of seduction. Two, if regression, taken in an absolute sense, reveals itself to be inadequate, it is because this regression encloses us simple this encloses us in simple reproduction or generation furthermore taking organic bodies and organized persons as its object the theory of regression merely attains the object of reproduction the point of view of the cycle alone is categorical and absolute because it attains production as the subject of reproduction which is to say it attains the process of autoproduction of the unconscious a unity of history and of nature, from homo natura to homo historia. It is certainly not sexuality that is in service of generation, that is in the service of generation, but progressive or regressive generation that is in the service of sexuality as a cyclical movement by which the unconscious, always remaining subject, reproduces itself. There is then no longer any call for wondering which is first, the father or the child, because such a question can be raised only within the framework of familialism. The father is first in relation to the child, but only because what is first is the social investment in relation to the familial investment. The investment of the social field in which the father, the child, and the family as a sub-aggregate are at one and the same time immersed. The primacy of the social field as the terminus of the investment of desire defines the cycle and the states through which a subject passes. The second era of psychoanalysis, made just as it was completing the separation of sexuality from reproduction, lies in having remained captive to an unrepentant familialism that condemned it to evolve so solely within the movement of regression or progression. Even the psychoanalytic conception of repetition remains captive to such a movement. Before I go on, we're going to stop there. Um, so uh, they kind of answer what I was asking very specifically, and I'm still not super grasping it, so please, anyone, feel free to jump in. But they're starting by two unavoidable conclusions. We're about to get to the third. I'm going to say they say two because they only have two so far. The first is that uh, the father comes first in relation to the child when it comes to actually how these uh, – uh, we'll say mental issues or styles of life or whatever you want to call it are actually created. The father's, the father visits his fantasies upon the son. The son's guilt is created through that. Uh, versus classic uh, Freudian and even Lacanian uh, stages of development, where the child actually develops these fantasies almost unto himself without influence from the parents. Uh, or their actions. They're saying, no, it's actually that the father and the mother, uh, they are sort of in, infecting the child with the guilt and with these other things. Is that a fair for point one? I think so. I I think, though, too, like, we, so, like, I really like the sentence, so the father is first in relation to the child, really amounts to saying the investment of desire is in the first instance the investment of the social field into which the father and child are plunged simultaneously immersed, right? The familial is possible only in relation to the social, 
or to say it differently, you, you can become a father because the father is made possible um, by the social investments. So like the, the reason I'm pointing this out is like, um, for the most part, I agree with what you're saying, but the father comes first is another way of saying the social investments flow into the familial, or that is to say as well, the familial is rendered possible and has this, um, this uh, falling back relationship with the social because of the, the social precedes the, I hate to say it that way, because the social, um, uh, the social regime allows for the possibility of the familial. So I'm actually going to uh, stop. Uh, Heron, I'm not going to say the rest of your name correctly. I apologize, Heron, um, has a great question uh, that we should probably dive into real quick. Um, first is, what do the terms regression and investment mean in this context? Let's start with regression because they use it a lot in this paragraph specifically. Um, investment, I think, is easier. It's, uh, uh, it's the idea of literally... We'll say emotional investment or psychic investment or desire investment. My my willingness and wish to sort of uh, attach myself to the world and do things inside of it. Is that fairly close to investment as a definition? Anyone? Um, could be like projection of value, projection of value onto things. Yeah. So. My investment in the social sphere is my willingness to project value upon interacting in the social sphere. My investment in the familial unit is, is uh, time and place into it from my own perspective. So the difference between a social and a familial investment would be the object of this investment, right? Yes, essentially investment means attention. I think, Algman, that's a really good... Uh, quick way to put it. So it's oversimplified, but I think we're trying to be simple because it's it's a complex concept. But regression, though, that's one I actually think would be worth diving into because the second uh, unavoidable conclusion is if regression taken in an absolute sense reveals itself to be inadequate, what do they mean by regression in that sense? Or is this differently? They're, they're trying to get to the starting point. Yeah, so is this is this them basically... Uh, again, the, the classic psychoanalytic uh, trap of, uh, uh, reg of regressive therapy, regression therapy. We're going to talk through where all this came from in your life, where all of this comes from. Uh, and if we, if that itself becomes inadequate, it is because this regression encloses us in reproduction or generation. Uh, basically, uh, it is not sexuality that is in service of generation, but progressive and regressive generation that is in service of sexuality as it is a cyclical setup. And that's the opposite of kind of how psychoanalysis comes from because they talk about regression until you find the first father. And then that's where your issues come from is you have jealousy of that. You were born with this Oedipal desire inside of you. Ish. I, I, I think that the regression is the reduction to the this idea of the childhood fantasies, but then there's another regression where, where uh, you know, one's in a psychological state where one returns to childhood, for instance. I I think both work here because, like, I, I think Brooks, you're hitting the nail on the head in the sense that, like, you're going through it again, right? So, like, this is the investing happening when you're 
when you're on the couch and the, the therapist says, so tell me where it began or tell me about the first time you tell me about uh, your, your memory. Yeah, tell me about your first memory. I just watched mother. Bill and Ted, and it's the fucking joke of the entire thing. Is that's all Freud says? It's pretty great, actually. Now that I know, now that I've, <laughs> it's a pretty great joke. Yeah, and in doing so, right, they're going to help you interpret that or provide interpretations for you to accept or reject. And going through this, right, this is where the other important thing we need with um with in, with investment with cathetsis here is the the point about memory, and like I think they call it mnemotonics or something but like to keep it simple like we're saying there's there's like an equity or stock of these memories or or what you've done in these actions um you know like like they're calling it like a recordings and all that that are accessed and that access us another question i have is it says the father is first in relation to the child but only because what is first is a social investment in relation to the familial investment um <laughs> Uh, obviously, this is privileging the idea of the father being the one who's the breadwinner, the one who deals with the rest of the world while the mother stays at home. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to necessarily get into the uh, gender issues I have with all of that. But is this uh, assuming that the social investment is coming because the father, the breadwinner, is forced to be the one who decides how the family as a unit is dealing with the social investment? As the breadwinner, as the one who chooses where money is spent, who chooses how money is earned, how we relate to to relate to the world as a unit. So my first question there would be with how we defined investment earlier. Whose investment are we talking about? Well, I would say just in general, almost any social investment. If we talk about the relations of a family. Uh, Let's do dur during this period, 50s and 60s, um, because again, I think it gets more difficult gender-wise gender to talk about this as a father being the one who does it. But my en an entire uh, family is determined ultimately at this time by how the father relates to the entire social field, almost as the linchpin of uh, his standing in the community, what his job is, how he works. The wife and the son are distant seconds in terms of how that social field is applied to the family as a whole unit. So this is what I meant earlier when I said the, the familial is made possible by the social. There's no father without the social field uh, making the father possible. So like when they say like the father comes before the child, right? it's another way of saying like the familial comes after. And I hate to put it this way because it's, I think it I think it makes the the the, um, the reflexive relationship kind of murky here, but right, there's not going to be the father, the mother, the the child without the social regime. So like the 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 familial regime is sort of like I don't want to call it a sub regime, but it's a regime made possible by the the social. I, I can agree with that. And I would say, let's let's be very specific today's day and time. Let's say um, uh, southern states, Mississippi, uh, the way that the father relates to the social field that exists there, uh, he is the one who is ultimately determinant of how the family, as a sub-aggregate, uh, are immersed. The, the father's role is, is ultimately what determines it. 
would so my I guess my question is, uh, is that what they're talking about when they say that the social field is essentially what enables the family and the familial unit to be a subaggregate, but the father's relations to that are ultimately what allows them to be immersed inside of that group delirium, the group fantasy on behalf of the father, but how the father sort of determines that. By using the example, for example, of uh, the film, uh, uh, Bigger Than Life, I mean, that's that's essentially what the, the movie is about, is uh, the idea that the father and what the father's going through is ultimately visited upon essentially helpless wife and child. Um, and it's only because uh, Walter, uh, uh, it's, it's only because his best friend uh, uh, dives in and says, no, we're, we're I'm going to stop you. They get into a huge fight and he's, he, he gets defeated by this other man, uh, sort of as a representative of the social field. The, the, the use of bigger than life feels like it's pointing towards something, uh, that I think we're missing at, at least in, in terms of like that underlying way that the family and the social field come together. So I haven't seen that movie, but the fact that that guy can go out and buy pills to make him better at his job, right? Like you, you can make this point in Marxism 101, yeah, but um, that that's made possible by social investments, right? Performance-enhancing drugs are things we consume every day. I drink well, coffee and it's, every And morning. it's very specific. He has an arterial condition that's rare, and so they prescribe him this drug, cortisol, and uh, the cortisone... Uh, he takes for it, and it gives him energy. It makes him a little bit better, but then he begins abusing it. And so it's this this story of basically the drug abuse, which wasn't a thing people talked about at all in the fucking 50s. Um, but again, the way that the father uh, and the family deals with that entire thing is through the eyes of the father. He's the one who determines that he's got to kill the son. He's the one who the wife, you know, brings religion to, and he dives back into to try to find a better place. And she's trying to help him, but she's ultimately ineffectual, trying to just placate him. Uh, that that dynamic, which is almost a, a perfect triangle, Oedipal-wise, uh, is, is fascinating for them to be using as an example, because where it stops is another father, uh, Walter Matthau actually plays him, uh, comes in and stops this guy from killing his son and defends him. And so, again, to get back to my question, where they ask, the father is first in relation to the child. That's the first thing we learn. But only because what is first is social investment in relation to familial investment. Wouldn't that assume that the father is basically what is enabling the social investment? If the father comes first, but also what is first is the social investment? Or am I overthinking this? This is why I hate to try and put it in terms of like what precedes, what follows. But um, go back to your example, right? There's that movie doesn't exactly work without the mother and child either, um, right? There's things that are expected of the mother, and these are social things, right? Yes. The wife is supposed to do certain things, and we get this if you if you read the book of Proverbs, it's in there. Um, what a wife ought to do. It's like the last second to last poem, um, right? And what the father should do. Um, it's normative in that regard. So um, I, I think what they're getting at with the father here is it's not so much that, because um, you're right, the father does have an important role in our society, at least in the U.S., and whether it's 1950 or 2020, um, that, that is consistent. But that is the social investment, isn't it? 
that the father would have these normative, um, I'll be Foucaultian about these normative indices, these, these um, norms, forms, and um, um, knowledges, these criterion that they could even be measured by is already indicative of certain social investments that come into play with the the, the potentiality of the father as well as the child um, and the mother here. Okay. I'm, I'm also, uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is when they talk about the father coming first and setting up that for the child, uh, then when they talk about actually what comes first is so, the social field and has primacy over all of this, but it's the father who uh, basically causes the uh, rift between him and the son. I'm also reminded of a early parts of logic and sense, and Deleuze does this throughout his writing, where he talks about things that happened in order, but gives them a simultaneity because it's kind of how words work, and logic of sense is big on this concept. Uh, how we talk about concepts, we may put them in uh, simultaneity or one before the other, and we can actually do both. There's a wonderful paradox about the entire thing. He uses Alice in Wonderland as the example. Um, so it feels like maybe this is one of those bits of wordplay that he was so big on, because I think there is a way for us to look at and say the father and his relations to the world, uh, uh, he visits upon the son, he comes first, how he interacts changes how the son behaves and responds. But at the same time, his interactions also cause the family as a whole to dive into the social world because they all exist only in relation to that social uh, fabric and that social field. I, I still think you're giving too much importance to the father, um, right? Because the, if the father is only made possible by the social, like, I think it would, I don't know if I would agree that the father is necessarily the, the, like, see, uh, the primal primary agent of the, the family, but, uh, more so that with what's going on in the familial, Right. Psychoanalysis can only make this case that um, the father precedes the child insofar as the um, the social regime kind of um, allows for that. So that is to say, like, what, whatever is going on in the familial psych psychoanalysis is going to um, and is going to take it. Um, right. Like with this, the story of like um, the movie and, and all that those things happening. These are all social investments that have a relationship to the familial, right? The, the social, um, I don't want to say bleeds into it, but really does bleeds into it in the same way that the familial is going to bleed into the social. So like gotcha. in Brooks's uh, story, right, we see them uh, working on each other, right? These are the break, break flows. We see the, like he said, the neighbor coming into play as like, I, I call them the angel of God because... I suppose it would be the angel of society, but it's also society in the same way that it's also God that uh, leads the person to kill their son, right? It's a one savior and um, executioner in a sense. I love that. Thank you. I'm going to move on now to the next paragraph and we will, this is the thing I'm going to spend a lot more time with in the review tomorrow because I really feel like there's something there. Yeah, who knows? Uh, <clears throat> three. Finally, the point of view of the community, which is disjunctive or takes account of the disjunctions in the cycle, not only is generation second is ah, 
Not only is generation second in relation to the cycle, but transmission is second in relation to an information or a communication. The genetic revolution occurred when it was discovered that, strictly speaking, there is no transmission of flows, but a communication of a code or an axiomatic of a combinative apparatus informing the flows. Such is also the case for the social field. Its coding or its axiomatic first determine within it a communication of unconsciousness. This phenomenon of communication, which Freud touched on only marginally in his remarks on occultism, constitutes in fact the norm and pushes into the background the problems of hereditary transmission that animated the Freud-Jung con controversy. It appears that, in the common social field, the first thing that the son represses, or has to repress, or tries to repress, is the unconscious of their father and the mother. The failure of that repression is the basis of neuroses. But this communication of unconsciousness does not by any means take the family as its principle. It takes as the principle the commonality of the social field in so far as it is the object of the investment of desire. In all respects, <clears throat> in all respects, the family is never determining, but is always determined, first as a stimulus of departure, then as an aggregate of destination, and finally as an intermediary or an interception of communication. Oh, God. So let's try this. Um, if we back up just a little bit to this question of reproduction and production, so we're getting to this third error of psychoanalysis, right? The second one being that um, psychoanalysis um, separates sexuality from reproduction. So as we're getting into this now, we've got a disjunctive um, account of the cycle, well, of the cycle of production and reproduction. I genuinely am, uh, a lot of this I'm just generally lost in. So maybe we put a pin on this and talk through it tomorrow, or we can give it a shot. Cause I, I didn't grasp a lot of what you just said there. Uh. Well, it, se it seems like what they're doing is they're, you know, they're taking the idea of the DNA code as their model for what's happening in the social. And so they said the second error was the separation of sexuality from reproduction. So, so they're basically saying reproduction is actually um, important and shouldn't be separated from sexuality. And then, then, so then they're going into this the the uh, the social, and they're saying, well, it's a code, it's an axiomatic, it's a combinatory apparatus uh, for informing flows, and basically. Basically, the information that's flowing back is back and forth between the, the various unconsciouses. And it's an interesting use of that because, uh, such is the case with the social field, its coding or its axiomatic first determine within it a communication of unconsciouses. The idea of the, the social fields, really, the first thing it does is it finds a way to cause multiple unconsciouses to begin essentially communication. And it kind of seems like he goes on to say that... Uh, Within a social field, uh, the way that the the child uh, represses and gets his 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 neuroses is because the father's and mother's unconscious ultimately is communicated 
to him. Uh, it's, it's an interesting way of talking that essentially, uh, I don't know, the, the thing I'm, I guess my brain is having trouble wrapping around is it essentially talks about here that our unconsciouses are basically able to talk to each other in a way that we are not directly, that it's a secondary language, uh, which is interesting because their big push towards this is a machinic unconscious. So uh, I, I guess I'm having trouble gathering how these unconsciouses communicate. So, so part of so part of the Freud-Young controversy, I think, was the fact that, you know, Freud said, well, the unconscious is always personal, whereas the Young developed this broader concept of a collective unconscious. And so, you know, it seems like they're underwriting this idea of the collective unconscious, but but they're kind of saying that that in that social field, there's all of these unconsciouses, and they are uh, transmitting information to each other. And, and interestingly enough, he's saying that the, you know, the first thing the child has to do is try to repress the unconscious of the father and the mother so that they don't affect him so much. And that the failure to do that is the basis of neurosis. If you, if you get overwhelmed by the unconscious of the father and the mother, then you develop the neurosis. Um, yeah, so so that was a so that was a lot. I actually wanted to jump in and go back to something that Kent said at the very beginning of what he said. Um, when you 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 said um, they want to not disconnect reproduction and sexuality, but they say more than that, right? They just they don't just say that these are connected but they reverse the relationship between um um the in in relation to what psychoanalysis says they go from psychoanalysis says sexuality is in the service of reproduction and they say reproduction is in the service of sexuality i guess we, what's, what's the implication of that yeah well that's what I'm asking more or less because I don't understand that sentence but I think it's important because they do not want to keep up the relationship uh, between sexuality and um, and reproduction that um, psychoanalysis poses. They do diverge from psychoanalysis in the relationship between sexuality and uh, reproduction. I, I think a key to what you're talking about is uh, that that part up above, right at the the top of one uh, two seventy six, where they say uh, the unconscious always remaining subject reproduces itself. Yeah, because sexuality is the uh, is the unconscious. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but I I don't I don't know exactly what it means. I was skipping over that bit. Because I, I think what I think the interesting thing they're saying in this paragraph that starts with number three is uh, that they're using the genetic code as a model. For I mean, it's important in so far as if we like it's actually very important. I think like I do not understand what exactly they are doing there, but uh, the delinking of or the reconfiguring of sexuality and reproduction is a core issue when we talk about the relationship between psychoanalysis and homosexuality and 
all this stuff that psychoanalysis has trouble with, right? So this seems like kind of important just based on the keywords involved. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. It's a, another interesting thing that they say here is the phenomena of communication, you know, communication of the unconsciouses, which Freud touched on only marginally in his remark on occultism. So, you know, I can imagine that's kind of like uh, sympathetic magic and stuff like that as an example of unconsciouses. Uh... Yeah, so that's the second thing, right? It's uh, This is actually the first time that they talk about multiple unconsciousness, uh, right? We didn't really leave the, the domain of one singular unconscious that produces reality actually reality not just the real well so yeah, they're, they're, suddenly they're suddenly telling us that this social field is a field of multiple unconsciousness and there's and there's communications between those unconsciouses using using the codes like the dna code as the yeah it's a wild theory <laughs> well, and i think so to go back and reread point one and two after reading three, I'm going to go back and uh, this is going to, maybe we should save this for review, but I'm starting to get stuck in the, and I like, and I like the, the idea of the progressive or regressive generation that is in service of sexuality, a cyclical movement by which the unconscious always remaining subject reproduces itself. That is done through progressive or regressive generation. Uh, those would be going forward and going back, forward and back, forward and back that produces ultimately sexuality, that produces desire, libidinal investment and all of that stuff. While remaining the subject, this happens inside of the unconscious. This, again, talks about at some level the machinic unconscious inside of that. When they come down to section three, the failure of that repression, and this is, it appears that in the common social field, the first thing the son represses or has to repress or tries to repress is the unconscious of the father and the mother. Uh, that that unconscious being communicated into via unconscious via this repression regression progression regression dynamic that's producing sexuality feels like they're talking directly back to that thing from point one or am i overthinking this again this whole section is going to break my fucking brain i just know it i'm getting very stuck in trying to figure out because it's it's very, very specific that they're talking about. Well, so they say the first error is that things began with the, with the child. Yes. The and first error is that you assume the kid has guilt because that's the nature of being a kid. And they're like, no, the dad was a dick, and that's why the kid has guilt. <laughs> Sorry to make it blunt, I guess. The but dad's the, 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 causes that. Then the, the second one is this... Um, separation of sexuality from reproduction which lou rightly says is a complicated question um but i think another complicated question is you know they're, they're talking about regression but but then they balance that with progression what's that what's progression what's progressive generation i think the the progression and uh, regression like that's actually something i thought about when we talked about um the regression is the thing where uh, we define Oedipus from the child's perspective out, out like um, the child traces 
Oedipus back. And progression would be the opposite when we um, um, trace uh, Oedipus from the father. Father passes Oedipus on. At least that uh, was my understanding. I'm not sure uh, whether okay. this makes completely sense. That helps. That helps. Thank you very much. But 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 you can see from this progression to and regression that the, the you know the temporality is entering here. You know because you have the you know the the projection of the future and the 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 uh, throneness of the past, according to Heidegger. So if that's how the unconscious works, which is what they're saying in part two, then part three is about how the social field and community uh, affects that through this sort of uh, collective-ish unconscious uh, through communication. And how the communication happens is an almost genetic-like process where, yes, we have these flows and these free flows, but there's a couple things. Just like with genetics, just like with DNA, uh, certain pieces can only fit in certain ways, so there is a combinative apparatus that informs the flows that are able to affect it. And I'd just like to say that uh, it's kind of interesting the way Deleuze does things is strange because he kind of drops a name, but then he doesn't kind of go into what that might mean. And, you know, it seems to me that this whole thing of uh, uh, repressing the unconscious of the father and the mother, that's that's really uh, what Jung calls individuation. And we got to be careful because Jung's collective unconscious is... So, right, like we're talking, for, for Jung, the collective unconscious would almost seem to be like a social investment of the unconscious of a person, right? Um, well, I, did you just literally read the next sentence? Like, it's like, that sounds like exactly like what they're actually about to say. Sorry to interrupt, Jack. It's a, uh, I, I just, I was amused. What, what's the next sentence? In the familial, if the familial investment is only a dependence or an application of the unconscious investments in the social field, and if this is just as true as the child of the adult, if it is true that the child, through the mommy territoriality and daddy law, already aims for schizes and the encoded or axiomated flows of the social field, we must transport the essential difference to the heart of this domain. Uh, really, it's, that's what you were just saying, Jack. To a point. Um... To, there's a key. I, I think there's a differentiation here, though, because for Jung, like the way that's going to work and the way the the way libidinal energy is activated um, with the archetypes is not what they're about to get into here. For uh, they being Deleuze and Guattari, right? Like more directly with these unconscious talk, um, having this means of communication that allows for not only an ongoing conversation, but that means the, the investments, the inventories of the unconsciences, right? This allows for an, uh, an economics that um, I don't think Jung exactly has. Let's put a pin in this and save it for the review tomorrow because we do want to get through this section. There's so much to discuss. All right, I'm going to reread what I just read out loud and we'll continue through the next paragraph. If the familial investment is only a dependence or an application of the unconscious investments of the social field, and if this is just as true of the child as of the adult, if it is true that the child, through the mommy territoriality and the daddy law, 
already aims for the schizes and the encoded or axiomatic flows of the social field, then we must transport the essential difference to the heart of this domain. Delirium is the general matrix of every unconscious social investment. Every unconscious social investment mobilizes a delirious interplay of disinvestments, counterinvestments, overinvestments. But we have seen in this context that there were two major types of social investment, segregative and nomadic. Just as there were two poles of delirium, first a paranoiac fascizing, uh, fashion soft type, or pole that invests the formation of central sovereignty, overinvests it by making it the final eternal cause for all other social forms in history, counterinvest the enclaves of the periphery, and disinvest every f free figure of desire. Yes, I am your kind and I belong to the superior race and class. And second, a schizo-revolutionary type or pole that follows the lines, lines of escape of desire, breaches the wall, causes flows to move, assembles its machines and its groups in fusion and all the enclaves are at the periphery, proceeding in an inverse fashion from that of the other pole. I am not your kind. I belong eternally to the inferior race. I am a beast, a black. Good people say that we must not flee, that to escape is not good that it isn't effective and that one must work for reforms. But the revolutionary knows that escape is revolutionary. Withdrawal freaks. Provided one sweeps away the social cover on leaving or causes a piece of the system to get lost in the shuffle, what matters is to break through the wall, even if one has to become black like John Brown, George Jackson. I may take flight, but all the while I am fleeing, I will be looking for a weapon despite a handful of moments that I felt deeply uncomfortable reading this section. Um, anyone want to dive in and give an explanation? This kind of reminds me of, um, in the literature group, we read Le Guin's um, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And this kind of reminds me of what uh, Le Guin was talking about when she she discusses like the people who leave Omelas, the, um, the eponymous people. Uh, who don't really know where they're going, but they're not going to be. And we got to be careful here because I don't want to suggest that they break out of everything altogether, that they're no longer in the social field itself, but that they're going somewhere else, right? That they're moving, that the investments have the potentiality of changing. And with that, so too with the um, what the unconscious produces. Does anyone have a comment? Oh, go ahead. So, so what I want to know is, what what does it mean to transport the essential difference into the heart of the domain? Uh, I will give this a shot, Kent. Uh, we have basically two sides that we're talking about in the two sentences prior to that sentence, uh, where we talk about familial investment as a dependence or application of the investments of the social field. And on the one side, you have the, the mother... Uh, mother, father, which is uh, mommy territoriality, daddy law, the way things are, the way things have been, the way things will be being told, the fascistic side, the paranoiac. And of course, the child, uh, all child, apparently, already aim for schizes. They are naturally going for that uh, schizo-revolutionary side of things. Uh, and so that's what they're seeing here is the 
we must transport that difference between the two to the heart of this, that really this is actually what is happening at a so, in a social field that on the one side we have the paranoiac fascizing, on the other side we have the schizo-revolutionaries, and that's the, if we want to talk about a conflict, uh, that that is the one they're talking about. At least it feels like they're doing that, and specifically around the social field, that's the end of what I'm saying. So then the next sentence is, delirium is the general matrix for every unconscious social investment. And they've defined delirium earlier as essentially those uh, uh, group fantasies. Uh, oh, pardon me. So I, I tend to go back to your first question. I took them as saying we've got to carry forward the um, what they were saying in that first sentence. So like, if the familial investment is only a dependence or an application of the unconscious investments of the social field, that is to say, if the familial is a kind of regime of the social, uh, then that and that is of course then going to be true for every child and adult. Um, then they're I, the way I read that, that last part, we must transport the essential difference to the heart of this domain. It sounds like they're just carrying that forward, so to speak. That's how I, I think I'm going to agree with Jack here, because it's what it sounds like they're doing is they're saying, look, if you have the social field, which determines the parents and the child and the way familial relations is going to be, then the other direction works as well, that things that are happening inside of that uh that triangle, that parent-child relationship also are happening. If you want to say the family relationship is the molecular and the social field is the molar, these things extend out. So I, I just want to point something out um, that we should probably keep in mind when reading this whole section. I haven't read ahead, but judging by how the previous chapters were, were um, structured, this section is probably a lot of exposition. Like, they're probably setting the stage for everything that they will explain more deeply after. So, that things are a bit dense here. I think that's fair. I mean, it's... it's uh, we, We've done this, ev actually, yes. Every single first section has been a nightmare to get through, and then by the end of it, we're like, oh, yeah, well, this is just expanding that part, that part, and that part. We should go back and redo readings of all the first sections. That might be fun. Uh, I, but I should continue on. We have 30, 45 minutes left. I want to make sure we get through this because we're about to hit beat poetry and I am a sucker for Ginsburg. Uh, doubtless, there are astonishing oscillations of the unconscious from one pole of delirium to the other, the way in which an expected revolutionary force, puissance, breaks free, sometimes even in the midst of the worst archaisms. Inversely, the way in which everything turns fascist or envelops itself in fascism, the way in which it falls back into archaisms. Or, staying on the level of literary examples, the case of Selene, the great victim of delirium, who evolves while communicating more and more with the paranoia of his father. The case of Jack Kerouac, the first the great, the artist, possessing the soberest of means who took revolutionary flight, but who later finds himself immersed in dreams of a great America, and then in search of his Breton ancestors of the superior race. Isn't the destiny of American literature that of crossing limits and frontiers, causing deterritorialized flows of desire to circulate, but always, but also always making these flows transport fascizing, moralizing, Puritan, and familiarist? familialist territorialities. Um, 
that's a hell of a damning thing to say about American literature, and it's hard for me to disagree with it. It hurts to, to recognize that in relation to Kerouac, too. I, but I, I, I see their point. <laughs> and they're about to get into it uh, deeply for uh, with Ginsburg as well. But it's basically just saying, take a look at uh, everything that these people do. Everything that Americans do has Americanism almost baked into it. Uh, the destiny of American literature, that of crossing limits and frontiers. Yes, that's uh, good. Absolutely. But causing deterritorious flows of desire to circulate, but also making these flows transport fascizing, moralizing, Puritan and familialist territorialities. There's a, the sense of life of America bleeds through inside of everything we do. So we're just going to ignore that he uses all these American authors to distract from Celine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for those of us not as familiar, if anyone wants to dive into Celine. Well, um, his first book, um, uh, La Voyage au bout de la nuit, I think the English title is Journey to the End of the Night was kind of um, celebrated in leftist circles as like this anarchist thing that shatters all bourgeois, petit bourgeois um, values. And it's actually a great book. I love that book. And I haven't read anything later from Celine. I think um, Deleuze and Guattari referenced his second novel, um, more or credit, something like this. Um, but Celine um, kind of went nuts after, or maybe was nuts all the, uh, already, um, like major anti-Semite um, Nazi collaborator um, during the occupation, um, the whole blade basically. Like in, in 1932, I think uh, Sartre and de Beauvoir wrote in a diary that um, uh, La Voyage was their favorite book of the year. And um, later, they completely condemned the man. Well, it's, it's, and it's, and it's an interesting specific case because I, they do expand more on Kerouac. And I think it's because... Um, Celine is, I don't want to say an obvious one, but it's such an interesting hard left to extreme right version of a man communicating ever more with the paranoia of the father, as they say, um, joining as that can, delirium. As I can just recommend reading up on Celine's biography and all this stuff, there's a lot of uh, ridiculous stuff in there. <laughs> but with Kerouac, it's, a, uh, it's less that he, well, I mean, he did too, um, that uh, famously leftist wandering beat poetry circle, but it ended with fascizing, moralizing, Puritan, familialist territorialities. That's, that's accurate. Anything before I move on to the last, the next uh, paragraph here? Just wanted to say, too, though, um, it's not a static configuration they're laying on here, too, right? Like we're talking about. Um, the paranoia from the schizo once again as a, as a as the subject oscillating right so like even with Kerouac there's there's journeys that he's taking that do have the sense of the um the schizo or the revolutionary flight 
but it's not a purity. And I, I think that's kind of maybe counter um, has a certain counter weaving with what we're saying here in terms of like the Puritanism that will come in um, to play in Kerouac's thematic um, development or his novelistic development, right? Is, is that even with Kerouac, you have some of this schizo um, investment, but you're also going to see the oscillation to the, um, the paranoiac. So to continue that with the next paragraph, these oscillations of the unconscious, these underground passages from one type of libidinal investment to the other, often the coexistence of the two, form one of the major objects of schizoanalysis. The two poles united by Artaud in the formula Heliogabus the Anarchist, the image of all human contradictions and of the contradiction in principle. But no passage impairs or suppresses the difference in nature between the two, nomadism and segregation. If we are able to define this difference as that which separates paranoia and schizophrenia, it is because, on the one hand, we have distinguished the schizophrenic process, the breakthrough, from the accidents and relapses that hinder or interrupt it, the breakdown. And because, on the other hand, we have posited paranoia no less than schizophrenia as independent of all familial pseudo-etiologies so as to make them bear directly upon the social field, every name in history and not the name of the father. On the contrary, the nature of the familial investments depends on the breaks and the flows of the social field as they are invested in one type or another, at one pole or another, and the child does not wait until he is an adult before grasping, underneath father-mother, the economic, financial, social, and cultural problems that cost through a family. His belonging or his desire to belong to a superior or an inferior race, the reactionary or the revolutionary tenor of a familial group with which he is already preparing his ruptures and his conformities. The kids pick everything up from the parents, and they already know early on what, what they're going to be fighting, what they're happy to join, and what they're happy to do things based on the parents unconscious and how it transports into the child. I think, I think that this uh, this phrase that it, they have every name in history and not the name of the father. I mean, I think that's kind of stating their fundamental position against Lacan. We have posited paranoia no less than schizophrenia as independent of all familial pseudo ideologies. Uh, every name in history, but not the name of the father. Yeah. Okay. I I, I would agree that is them directly. Responding to Lacan, actually, again. I want to say, too, were they crossing through the family, the economic, financial, social, and cultural problems that cross through a family, his belonging or his desire to, be, to belong to a superior or an inferior so-called race, the reactionary or the revolutionary tenor of a familial group with which he is already preparing his ruptures and his conformities. Like to impact this just a little bit right so like these social economic political these investings cut through the family i think this is right because well i think this is very well articulated in the sense that like so brooks you said like you're going to learn these things from your parents and that might be but like we all know that as thanksgiving fastly approaches and we uh, we americans go again across the uh, frontier to our local Meyer and then to our dinner table. Um, 
and the question of politics will come up, of course, you're going to see major familial differences, not only in candidates, but even where they agree in candidates on positions, right? And, and reasons why, more importantly. Um, and to that point, I think this is right because you're going to see things. <laughs> it's not so pre-written, is it? It's not so prefigured. We're going to see things um, actively colliding and actively, um, like they're saying, actually, we're going to see paranoiac and schizo investments simultaneously, or rather, in coexistence. I think the way to put it is in coexistence, because essentially they're talking here about uh, my desires as a child, as I'm growing up, uh, what is going to be repressed within me, where I'm allowed to freely experience desire uh, and kind of how those breaks and flows are going to exist within me changes based on this incredibly complex tapestry of reality that is flowing through my family. Uh, I, there may be a presidential election happening, for example. Uh, during a pandemic, after father lost his job against a Republican president uh, inside of a world where China is the one who does, like whatever that tapestry is that absolutely does flow in and out of the family because it, it just does. Uh, the child does not wait until he is an adult before grasping these problems that cross through. And he has already begun forming where he will be reactionary and where he will be revolutionary in response to those things based on how his parents and the family unit sort of exists within that. Yes, but not with so much prefiguring, right? There, so like when I was, in, when I was like 10 years old in fifth grade, um, it actually was first grade, maybe, no, fifth grade, uh, the Bush uh, carry election was happening. And I was like 10 years old and everybody my age was, oh yeah, are you voting? Not even are you voting? Do you support Kerry or Bush, right? And if you asked them, they would even, well, I think it'll help my family this way, right? Like there is an investing going on and sometimes they disagree with their parents or not. Politics, but... politics is the one that came to mind for me. Now it's going to date me a little bit differently, but I distinctly remember being in second grade um, when it was going to be... <laughs> Um, Bill Clinton versus George Bush, uh, the first, uh, he had a father for you children. Um, and I distinctly remember actually arguing, my dad's a Republican, sorry, I apologize in advance, I'm not that anymore, um, about how uh, Bill Clinton was going to do trade wars that would cost us construction jobs. Uh, my, that's what my dad did for a living. I don't give a shit about it. Like, Never in my life have I given a shit about like construction as a thing directly, but that's because these are how the flows affected politics in the family. I was in second grade. I have no concept of this. And that's precisely it, right? Like, like you said, too, there's still changes happening. Your dad and you develop, and that's that's the thing here, right? Like th with this point about the progressive and the regressive um, in relation to the generative, things aren't static. Um, you, if even if you find this Freudian origin point, right? If, if you find that first memory of the mother and then the suckling, that's not going to be your point of departure for everything that comes after, is it? Because yeah. that still doesn't explain the social, the political, the economic, and all the things that uh, have happened since then. Well, and again, if we go back to where they talk about uh, the way DNA 
uh, as a inf information communication flow for the unconscious functions. They talk specifically about, yes, it's flows, but it's these chunks of information at a time that attach to certain places because they can, which is effectively how DNA works. It's a different pieces can go different places, but there are some very specific rules. They're saying kind of that's how this works, that there are some very specific rules. These things flow through the family and they attach where they attach. And it's going to be, I, it's a, it's a really interesting way to talk about this. I, I do want to continue on any last thoughts on this paragraph before we move on. Just want to say, check out Artos, Elio Gabalas, the, uh, the crowned anarchist. I've only read a few passages, but I think it's cool that they keep bringing up that particular text. And what I've read of it is, it is definitely um, um, an inferno of, an, uh, of a text. What a muddle, what an emulsion the family is. Agitated by backwashes, pulled in one direction or another, in such a way that the Oedipal bacillus takes or doesn't take, imposes its mold or doesn't succeed in imposing it, pursuing directions of an entirely different nature that traverse the family from the exterior. What we mean is that Oedipus is born of an application or a reduction to personalized images, which presupposes a social investment of a paranoiac type, which explains why Freud first discovers the familial romance and Oedipus while reflecting on paranoia. Oedipus is a dependency of the paranoiac territoriality, whereas the schizophrenic investment commands an entirely different determination, a family gasping for breath and stretched out over the dimensions of a social field that does not reclose or withdraw, a family as matrix for depersonalized partial objects, which plunge again and again into the torrential or depleted flux of a historic cosmos, a historic chaos, the matrical fissure of schizophrenia as opposed to paranoiac castration and the line of escape as opposed to the blue line, the blues. I have no idea what that last sentence means, but I can go back. I can go back to the other stuff. Does anyone have any idea about the blues, blue line, what they're, what, I'm sure it's a snarky French joke from like 1971, which is perfectly timely for me. And so I really want to understand it. So I have no clue, but I found interesting that the blues is actually just in the English translation. I've looked up the French text and there's only the blue line. So the blues seems to be the clarification. <laughs> so does that text also immediately go into Ginsburg? Um, so let's go back a little bit in this one. Uh, the way that the Oedipal Bacillus takes or doesn't take, imposes its mold or doesn't, um, I, I found to be a, a cute reference and way to describe um, how, as the family sort of is brushed through all of this, uh, Oedipus is waiting like a bacteria to infect and, and grow within. I think this, so obviously, I absolutely agree with you. Like that is a wonderful um way of talking about it as a mold or as a bacteria, like you're saying, right? Because we've talked about how this circulates, right? How it's a sort of economical thing, but in, in, in a very real desire way uh, or libidinal way. I really like when they expand on that to say, what we mean is that Oedipus is born of an application or a reduction to personalized images, which presupposes a social investment of a paranoiac type which explains why Freud first discovers the familial romance and Oedipus while reflecting on paranoia. So what I like about that is like, 
there's a point here about um, interpretation, right? Application and reduction to personalized images um, that presupposes a social investment of paranoiac types, so, right? Like, it's not, we to say simply that psychoanalysis does this, right? Like, I, I, what I'm getting out of this sentence is in one way, well, okay, but like, there's a social investment here too, right? Um, or in a different way, when we when we start working, uh, when we start interpreting things ourselves, and we start looking at these personal images, because this also seems to kind of at least glance at Jung here to a certain degree, um, that when we start doing this interpretive work, there's a point where we can get into a paranoiac or an, um, an exclusionary uh, investment here. I, I, to me, this paragraph speaks to, um, I, I think, again, they've been getting at this concept of the presupposition where Oedipus sits inside of how we become subjects uh, and how subjectivity is generated and Oedipus starting everything uh, with a reduction of personalized images, that it's born of that. And personalized images being the thing that it does that presupposes that view, that social investment of the paranoiac type. On the other side of things, obviously, everything's deeply depersonalized. This is schizophrenic. Uh, again, speaking to the fact that this is not a book about how we all should be trying to be schizo, but just that on the one side, you have the paranoiac who knows exactly how the entire world works down to a molecular grain of sand every way. On the other side, you have the schizophrenic uh, as a family stretched out across dimensions of a social field that does not with close or withdraw that gives nowhere for them to attach to gives no placement for subjectivity whatsoever and so you have kind of these two poles uh that they kind of drive between i just i like that uh visual personally plunging again and again to the torrential or depleted flux of a historic cosmos a historic chaos all right. Um, I'm going to move on to, uh, I'm going to read, because it's worth reading through, uh, Ginsburg, and then I'm going to move immediately into the next paragraph. Uh, just as a little bit of uh, forward for this, uh, uh, Ginsburg, brilliant poet, no Nobel laureate, I believe, uh, one of the best uh, we've ever had. Uh, left behind his Judaism, his religiosity, his family, a lot of things uh, as part of the sort of beat poetry or poet world. His mother, uh, deeply schizophrenic and very ill, uh, passed away. And he wrote uh, the, the Kibbe, uh, the Kaddish, I believe. The Kaddish is uh, the name of this piece. Um, and it's uh, sort of a reference to Jewish prayers for someone who's dying. Uh, there's a lot of subversions in it a lot. Um, so to read. Oh, mother, farewell with a long black shoe. Farewell with Communist Party and a broken stocking, with your sagging belly, with your fear of Hitler, with your mouse of bad short stories, with your belly of strikes and smokestacks, with your chin of Trotsky and the Spanish War, with your voice singing for the overbroken workers, with your eyes, with your eyes of Russia, with your eyes of no money, with your eyes of starving India, with your eyes of Czechoslovakia attacked by robots, with your eyes being led away by policemen to an ambulance, with your eyes with the pancreas removed, with your eyes of appendix operation, with your eyes of abortion, with your eyes of ovary removed, with your eyes of shock, with your eyes of lobotomy, with your eyes of divorce. 
Why these words, paranoia and schizophrenia, which are like talking birds and girls' first names? Why do social investments follow this dividing line that gives them a specifically delirious content, recreating history in delirium? And what is this line? How can we situate schizophrenia and paranoia on either side of it? Our assumption is that everything happens on the body without organs, but this body has, as it were, two faces. Elias Canetti has clearly shown how the paranoiac organizes masses and packs. The paranoiac opposes them to one another, maneuvers them. The paranoiac engineers masses. He is the artist of the large molar aggregates, the statistical formations or gregariousness, the phenomena of organized crowds. He invests everything that falls within the province of large numbers. The night of the battle, Colonel Lawrence lines up the young naked corpses on the full body of the desert. Judge Schraber attaches little men by the thousands to his body. It might be said that of the two directions in physics, the molar direction that goes towards the large numbers of the, and the mass phenomena, and the molar direction that on the contrary penetrates into singularities, their interactions and connections at a distance or between different orders. The paranoiac has chosen the first. He practices macrophysics, and it could be said by contrast, the schizo goes the other direction, that of microphysics, of molecules, insofar as they no longer obey the statistical laws, waves and corpuscles, flows and partial objects that are no longer dependent upon the large numbers, infinitesimal lines of escape instead of the perspective of the large aggregates. I do, I do really love uh, anything having to do with Ginsburg. It, it's, I would Google Kaddish. I believe the whole thing's free online, 100% worth reading the entire thing. It's a very sad, uh, I thought, powerful uh, eulogy for his mother. Uh, apparently going to be a film. I Googled it last night. Apparently going to be a movie because fuck everything. Um, but it, the following paragraph goes into this idea of... Uh, from from the poem, essentially the, the the pieces that make us up. What? Why do social investments follow this dividing line of paranoia and schizophrenia? The the molar to the molecular, and then he goes into Elias Canetti to read the footnote uh, from Crowds in Power, which is uh, also very worth reading. His mind was dominated by four kinds of crowds, his army, his treasure, his corpses, and his court, and with it, his capital. He juggled with them ceaselessly, but only succeeded in increasing one at the expense of another. Whatever he did there was always one, crowd which he managed to preserve. In no circumstances did he ever cease to kill the heaps of corpses piled up in every province of his empire. Um, the paranoiac is the master of the molar. It's essentially what he's, they're talking about here. Um, and the molecular is that of the schizo, who doesn't really think of things as that almost... It's This is, I think, a thing we're going to have to go over in the review. But it's, it's how the molar and molecular come out uh, between these two sides. I, it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Any thoughts on this before we move on? Yeah, I wanted to say um, I really like the use of Ginsburg here because um, you can kind of see some of these investments, right? It sounds like this little blue line. Um, it reminds me of that thin, like, thin white line between madness and reason, right? It sounds like there's a, a little thin blue line between the schizophrenic and paranoiac, which I think you, you're doing a nice job of saying like part of that 
that line is the um, the molecular and the molar, right? We can where we're looking at these investments, we're we're kind of taking different perspectives here, and you can kind of see that in this poem where you see like um, communist party a broken stocking, right? So like communist party already seems to me to get into like a larger aggregate, but right then and there with it is this this personal effect and personal item. Right. And you can kind of see how these two things are like that coexistence they were talking about, where even with the personal item of the black stocking, right at that perhaps molar level, um, right, because a, a black sock, a stocking has the ability to also walk away as well as walk with. So, too, do we see like the more macro investment of the Communist Party. And uh, just to mention the the part right before this starts they actually left out i i think the important part of this poem the the entire the entire thing is is him talking to his mother about all the things he remembers about her and it's um stories moments things that they experienced that were real and not schizophrenic real whatever you want to call it and it it muddled between which is which really interesting but right before this is the rest of this is the last section of the Kadir where he's actually oh mother the line is oh mother what have i left out oh mother what have i forgotten uh then suddenly this long ramble of all the different pieces of his mother that like are all of the different things that made her up to him I, like this, it, I think this is important to this concept because, and they cut out a ton of, they cut out a ton from this, but it's, uh, I, I pulled it up uh, with your eyes of rush, your eyes of no money, uh, with the eyes of your relatives in California, the eyes of your failure at the piano, your eyes of America taking a fall, your eyes pissing in the park. It's all of these, these moments that are beautiful, happy memories, odd memories, sad memories, things that are, are a little too brutalist to want to experience, but it's all these pieces, these molecular parts of the molar mom that makes her up. It, it's, it's, if I want to say what the point of the poem is, it's that. It's that we have all of these things that make up our memories, and it's difficult to parse how I should remember someone who's, who's, who's passed. Uh, it's, it's such a fucking good poem. Please read it. I'm getting emotional talking about it. So maybe the literature group wants to pick that one up one day. We just need uh, some of uh, our lovely um, collective to come on over and make a recommendation in our quarantine collective uh, syllabus, and we can vote on it and take up uh, Ginsburg. I think uh, I'm going to make sure we do this soon. I, I will probably join, and I will probably cry as I read it because it's uh, it's it's a poem of loss uh, that I've read multiple times after experiencing some significant. It's really beautiful, but again, the point of the paragraph following it is very much about uh, this sort of idea of the paranoiac on the one side that is able to handle all of the molar. Uh, the large numbers, mass phenomenon, and molecular direction on contrary penetrates into singularities, their interactions, connections at a distance or between different orders. That's, that is actually a great summation of what the Ginsburg poem is about, what the Kaddish is about. Um, so I really like that, um, that use. I'm going to continue moving on, unless anyone has anything. Just a final thought I wanted to say, too, just to make a very brief ontological point. 
um, like when psychoanalysis talks about the mother, right? So like there's obviously a, a, an idea of what a mother is there. Uh, and even if we're looking at Sophocles' um, play, right, where, where we have, I think her name's just Josepha, I think it was, but um, right, so we have this idea of what a mother is uh, or perhaps should be, but none of that, um, as I've encountered, would conform to what Ginsburg is discussing about his mother here. And yet in a different way too, like like we're saying the social investments, that, that affects um, what his mother, um, I don't want to say just was, but was being to him during all these me uh, memories, right? Like well, this and, is again, and, now I'm, and that's where I'm, that's where I'm going to move on because it's definitely, and, and I, again, I do want to get through this section. We're getting close, but I think it's about to be at this paragraph. Um, Doubtless, it would be a mistake to contrast these two dimensions in terms of the collective and the individual. On the one hand, the Micro-unconscious presents no fewer arrangements, connections, and interactions, although these arrangements are of an original type. On the other hand, the form of individualized persons does not belong to it, since it knows only partial objects and flows, but belongs instead to the laws of statistical distribution of the molar unconscious or of the macro-unconscious. Freud was Darwinian, near-Darwinian, when he said that in the unconscious everything was a problem of population. Likewise, in the contemplation of multiplicities, he saw a sign of psychosis. It is therefore more a matter of the difference between two kinds of collections or populations, and the large aggregates and the micro-multiplicities. In both cases, the investment collective is an investment of a collective field, even as even a lone particle has an associated as a flow that defines the coexisting space of its presences. Every investment is collective, every fantasy is a group fantasy, and in this sense, a position of reality. But the two kinds of investment are radically different, accordingly as the one, according as the one bears upon the molar structures that subordinate the molecules, and the other, on the contrary, bears upon the molecular multiplicities that subordinate stretched crowd phenomena. One is subjugated group investment, as much in its sovereign form as in its colonial formations of the gregarious aggregate, which socially and physically represses the desire persons, the others a subject group investment in the transverse multiplicities that convey desire as a molecular phenomenon, that is, as partial flows and objects as opposed to aggregate persons. So this is, uh, again, just to say, their point is very clear. We are not talking about collective versus individual. That is old hat. Let's throw that out. What we're talking about instead is something new. And that new is something that is very, very different from the exception of individual versus collective, but instead treats the individual as almost a multiplicity. And uh, we need to think about it as almost a subjugated group investment. At the same time, on the other hand, we're dealing with people who are uh, sub the subject group investment in the transverse multiplicities that convey desire as a mold phenomenon. Uh, wow, this is a lot to get through. Fuck. Someone, jump in. Uh, just to make it more complicated, um, I think this um, dismissal of the opposition between collective and individual is important when we think about the multiple unconsciouses. 
because these unconsciouses are not personal unconsciouses that belong to individuals. They're also not, uh, to, just to say, they're, they're also not necessarily a singular collective unconscious like Jung. This is something more complex than that, isn't it? Well, I think I think the point is that it's the Simondon model of the pre-individual and the trans-individual. So that's why it's not collective and individual, because we're talking about the pre-individual and the trans-individual. Yes, and, and that's base, but that's interesting because um, how do we talk about um, multiple unconsciouses if we do not have a strict inside-outside distinction? Well, see, the, 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 the problem with this whole thing with Simondon is that, you know, pre-individual and trans-individuals kind of assumes the individual is there. And it seems it seems it seems like what they want to do is they want to try to move to a position prior to the individual arising. And 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 we don't have any words for that. This and I I don't want to get too deep into diving into Simonden because it's I've been fortunate that we've been doing a lot of that reading. Um I would like to put a pin in this because this is, I think, where we could spend an extraordinary amount of time. And I think we have another paragraph that starts to explain how this works from a at least individual relationist perspective. I think the next half and then we'll actually cover that as we finish this uh, chapter out. So unless anyone has an objection, I'd love to put a pin in it. Yeah, I'd be cool with putting a pen in it. Perhaps um, Hermes incoming, you could join us for the review tomorrow. Um, I think we would benefit from having your voice in this discussion and looking a little bit more closely at some of this, because yeah, I, I think and, it's and Kent as well. is Jungian. Well, and Kent as well for Simon Dunn, because I think when we start talking about uh, individualization, where um, the 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 way that individualization works inside of Simon Dunn's pre and post and pre and trans individualism, I think is. Yes. So I'm going to continue reading, though. <clears throat> it's true that social investments are made just itself as a full, and that the respective poles necessarily relate to the character or the, the socius, earth, despot, or capital money. For each social machine, the two poles, paranoiac and schizophrenic, are distributed in varying ways. Whereas the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, properly speaking, do not operate on the socius, but on the body without organs in a pure state. It might then be said paranoiac, in a clinical sense of the term, makes us spectators to the imaginary birth of the mass phenomenon, and does so at a level that is still microscopic. The body without organs is like the cosmic egg. Giant molecules swarming with worms, bacilli, lilliputin figures, animalcules, and homunculi with their organization and their machines, minute strings, ropes, teeth, fingernails, levers and pulleys, catapults. Thus in Schreiber, the millions of zoids in the sunbeams or the souls that lead a resistance as the little men on Arto says, this world of microbes, which is nothing than coagulated nothing. The two sides of the body without organs are therefore the side on which the mass phenomenon and the paranoiac investment corresponding to it are organized on a microscopic scale, and on the other side on which, on the sub-microscopic scale, the molecular phenomenon and their schizophrenic investment are arranged. 
It is on the body without organs as a pivot, as a frontier between molar and molecular that the paranoia schizophrenia division is made. Are we to believe, then, that social investments are secondary projections, as if large two-headed schizonoiac father of the primitive horde were at the base of the socius in general? We have seen that this is not at all the case. <clears throat> the socius is not a projection of the body without organs. Rather, the body without organs is the limit of the socius, its tangent of deterritorialization, the ultimate residue of a deterritorialized socius. The socius, the body of the despot capital money, are clothed full bodies, just as the body without organs is a naked full body. But the latter exists at the limit, at the end, not at the origin. And doubtless the body without organs haunts all forms of socius. But in this very sense, if social investments can be said to be paranoiac or schizophrenic, it is to the extent that the paranoia and schizophrenia as ultimate problem under the determinate conditions of capitalism. I'm going to read the last, last paragraph, and then we'll discuss the imagery, because the imagery, I think, talks through this, and we can have a few minutes to discuss all of this, because this, this basically rounds out the rest of the point. From the standpoint of a universal clinical theory, paranoia and schizophrenia can be presented as the two extreme oscillations of a pendulum oscillating around the position of a socius as a full body and at the limit of a body without organs, one whose sides is occupied by the molar aggregates and the other populated by molecular elements. One can also present this as a single line along which the different forms of socius, their planes and their large aggregates are arranged. On each of these planes, there is a paranoiac dimension, another that is perverse, a kind of familial position, and a dotted line of escape or schizoid breakthrough. The major line ends at the body without organs, and there it either passes through the wall, opening onto the molecular elements where it became becomes actual fact what it was from the start, the schizophrenic process, the pure schizophrenic process of deterritorialization. Or it strikes the wall, rebounds off it, and falls back into the most miserably arranged territorialities of the world a simulacra of the preceding planes, getting caught up in the asylum aggregate of paranoia and schizophrenia as clinical entities, in the artificial aggregates or societies established by perversion, and the familial aggregate of Oedipal neuroses. So I think this line that they keep talking about is the line that goes down the middle of the first, uh, the, the, the upper diagram. Okay, and here we're talking about how, I think this is what they were telling the, pre the previous paragraph or, um, or the penultimate paragraph where they were talking about how, like, was it the socius or the full body of the organs is like this, this sort of connecting thing between the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, or rather it is the connection. So what do you guys make of this sentence? The major line ends at the body without organs, and I believe this is what um, Kent was talking about. And there it either passes through the wall, opening onto molecular elements where it becomes an actual fact, what it was from the start, the schizophrenic process, the pure schizophrenic process of deterritorialization, or it strikes the wall, rebounds off it, and falls back into the most miserably arranged territorialities of the modern world as simulacra of the preceding planes, getting caught up in the asylum aggregate of paranoia 
and schizophrenia as clinical entities and the artificial aggregates or societies established by perversion in the familial aggregate of Oedipal neuroses. So how, how I, I take this is um, take uh, things that uh, any person desires to happen. I, I think of a thing, I want to do a thing, whatever it is. Uh, this thing flies at the wall that is the full body without organs. Uh, it has a chance to bust through. If it does, that's wonderful. We've deterritorialized a thing. And then at some point, obviously, it's going to be re-territorialized in that same moment by capital. But hey, we've done this. We've broken through, found new ground. Um, and uh, it gets folded back under. Uh, and this can, this process continues over time. Um, this The way that it has worked over time is originally when things hit the full body without organs uh, and they bounced back uh, when they uh, weren't able to break through, they became ultimately in the body of the earth, uh, the socius of the earth, they became uh, perversions. Uh, under the despotic body, they arrange themselves as paranoiac psychoses. And under capital, uh, we tend to have an Oedipal neuroses of, of, as of family entities uh, through our familial system, since that's how we deal with the sort of larger scale social fabric of society, social field. Is that similar to what people are talking about? Is that, is that a summation? Tomorrow. Uh, because I think unless anyone has any last things to say, Kent, Lou, anyone, Jack, I think we're going to go ahead and uh, uh, save the rest for the review. Um, and so for now, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us uh, during this reading. We're going to get back. It's uh, same time tomorrow, noon, PST, same room, same chat place, same Discord. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, please join us anytime you can.